<laughs> I'd like to uh, invite you tonight to broaden your understanding of your practice as much as possible. This is the moment where that's a very good idea. One of the reasons, um, just as an aside almost, that the Buddha recommended study quite a bit is because he said it helped us broaden our sense of our path. He likened it to an elephant moving through a jungle, cutting a very wide arena for their footsteps. Rather than being lost in identification with a particular method or a particular form, rather than being lost in some kind of sectarian dispute about which form or which method is better, rather than being wrapped up in some kind of ideology, study amongst many things, study really meaning understanding, both from reading and analyzing and from one's own experience, study really helps us have a broad understanding of what we are doing, to understand methods and forms as what we call skillful means, ways of bringing our our being into balance, ways of seeing more clearly, ways of letting go of old habits, So rather than claiming one as the perfect one, we can understand how many different means can be utilized at different times or by different people toward that same end. So our path becomes really broad. I can remember very early on in my meditation career when I knew nothing. But was practicing with one particular teacher, this man named Goenka, who taught a, a method of mindfulness, of practice, insight practice, where you're really practicing mindfulness of the body in a um, kind of formula where you start with paying attention to the sensation on the top of your head and then move your attention down through your body in a particular way um, until you get to the soles of your feet. And then you begin again by paying attention to the sensation on the top of your head. And that method uh, he called sweeping. So that was my very first meditation practice. And I can remember soon after I began practicing that, I was having a conversation with another meditation teacher in town, the town of Bodhgaya, named Manindra, who said something to me about my mindfulness practice. And I, in total ignorance, said to him, I'm not practicing mindfulness, I'm practicing sweeping. (laughs) And he looked at me and he said something like, well, if you're not practicing mindfulness, it might take a very long time then. (laughs) You know? So, of course, I was practicing mindfulness, I hope. It was just in a particular form with a particular 
uh, kind of method, a particular technique. But underlying the application of that technique were the qualities that the technique was developing, which was the whole point, not moving one's attention up and down one's body, but the mindfulness. I don't know if Meninger remembered that in years to come when I became his student, but I've often looked back on that moment in time and his little smile and, and sort of the sparkle in his eyes when he said, it might take a very long time then. <laughs> you know, so to understand what we are actually doing <laughs> is a very good thing. And to loosen the grip of that kind of identification and attachment. Here we are coming to the end of a very dedicated period of intensive practice, you know, six weeks or three months even, perhaps. And that is just one form, one way of practice, one means. It's a, a magnificent form. It's a, a really great thing to do. For one thing, it is so incredibly odd in this culture. <laughs> you know, people will think nothing of going to college for four years or six years or eight years or 12 years, but three months in an intensive silent retreat, it's so bizarre. And that's good. You know, it's good to step away from the expectations of our lives and the the responsibilities and the ways we define ourselves and the ways we are defined by others. That's a tremendous thing all by itself. And then to have the level of renunciation and simplicity that we get to enjoy here, that's also a good thing. You know, we can get so accustomed in our daily life to a certain level of comfort and be quite demanding when that comfort seems threatened in any way. But I look back at that time when I lived in India in the early 70s, and I think, well, (coughs) one thing I'm really grateful for is that I didn't have a whole long list of demands about what I thought I needed in order to be happy. Because there's no doubt they wouldn't have been met in terms of the external circumstance. But it was a tremendous time. And it's great to step away from what our entire culture tells us incessantly we need in order to be happy, in order, in fact, to ask ourselves that question. What do I need in order to be happy? To be able to enjoy something simple, I can remember the first time I left India and I flew to uh, London and I was standing in Heathrow Airport in the bathroom and I was staring at the sink thinking, quite puzzled, thinking, why do they have two faucets in this sink? This is after about a year and a half in India. And then I thought, oh, they have hot running water. It's like I'd forgotten you know, these kinds of things I had not only taken for granted, but I couldn't even imagine, you know. It was unthinkable to live without certain kinds of things and to, 
to dare to step away, to have that kind of adventure is also a tremendous thing. To have come on retreat, to make that kind of exploration. And then, of course, just the sheer intensity of the practice. To have no one to answer to. To have no other demands on our time. So that if you were making the kind of effort I talked about once to notice the intention before you made a major movement, like standing up in the dining room, and you had missed it, you could sit down again and then stand up and sit down and stand up, and it's actually a place where it can be okay. It's pretty remarkable. You don't have to hurry through your cup of tea in order to make a phone call, in order to meet someone's demand on you. So the warmth of the teacup and the taste of the tea and the actual experience of it is enough. It's full. It's complete. It's a remarkable thing. And it's one form. So coming toward the end of of this time, it is very important to understand what that form what the method is intended toward, what are the underlying qualities that it's all about, so that we don't feel that sense of attachment and and clinging to something that is really only one part of a much bigger picture that is our life. You know, the uh, mudra, the, the gesture of the, the Buddha image, um, yes, behind me, <laughs> uh, that is so uh, famous, so well-known of the Buddha on the eve of his enlightenment, then known as the Bodhisattva, reaching down and touching the earth as Mara, uh, who's the legendary figure, kind of like the devil in, in Buddhist teaching. Um, Mara is known as the killer of virtue or the killer of life. Mara uh, is challenging the bodhisattva, trying to get him to give up on his resolve to attain perfect freedom. And so through that night, as the bodhisattva sat under the tree, you know, Mara attacked with all those legendary um, Moments, you know, hailstorms and rainstorms and ghastly figures to try to frighten him and get him to get up and leave, and all these sensual delights to tempt him to get up and leave. And um, it kept on going through the night until uh, at one point in the final attack of Mara, they say Mara basically attacked with self doubt. He challenged the Bodhisattva, more or less saying, who do you think you are to think, to imagine that you can be enlightened, that you can be free? Who do you think you are? And in response, the Bodhisattva, it is said, reached his hand down over his knee and touched the earth, calling upon the earth itself to bear witness 
to all of the many lifetimes in which he had practiced these qualities known as the paramis or the perfections, that in effect gave him the right to that intense and noble and aspiration as to be a free being. So he touched the earth, and it said the earth shook, bearing witness to all of those many lifetimes. And seeing that, Mara was vanquished. He fled into the night. The bodhisattva sat on through the night and became enlightened, became the Buddha at the appearance of the first morning star, like at dawn. So those qualities, the paramis or the perfections, were like a a wave that brought that bodhisattva, that being, to that moment in time with every right to be there. And so too for us, we can understand those qualities as what we are developing, what we're committing our lives to, what we are embodying, what we are um, expressing, whether we are talking about intense inner work, either in the form of retreat or in terms of daily practice, or whether we're talking about simply how we live. Because the truth is that in that bigger picture, that more expansive view, our lives really are of one piece. It's not a question of, you know, sitting for an hour a day or whatever in a dedicated pursuit of truth and then telling lies at work. It doesn't work that way. Our lives really are seamless. It's all of one piece. And so too is our spiritual life. So whether it's in an externalized form or in terms of going within, this is what our practice is about. It's the development of these kinds of qualities. And they are things, all of which we've talked about in the course of the retreat in one way or another. The first of the paramis is generosity. External generosity, you know, we've talked about a lot, and I think we can understand it. Um, We know what it's like to give. We know what it's like to hold back. Um, We know what it's like to honor a gift when... We only have a little bit materially to offer, but we do it wholeheartedly. And we need to understand internal generosity as well. When we forgive ourselves, our minds have wandered. When we begin again. When we relinquish our old identification. There have been so many times in my practice when... I've just been sitting, and some really nasty thought has come up. Like a very jealous, competitive thought. And I've seen it come, I've seen it go, and I've brought it back so I could punish myself some more for having had the thought. It was already gone. But I had to bring it back. You are such a jealous person. What a horrible thing. 
to have that sense of relinquishment, of letting go, which is the same thing that happens when we give someone a gift or give something externally, to let go. It's really the same quality of mind, whether we are practicing it in one form or another. And it's tremendously powerful for its, its open quality, for the joy that comes when we're not having that experience of a clenched fist and holding on. So it's really the same thing. When we are offering loving kindness to someone, and there isn't so much of the sense of, ah, oh, this is nothing, you know, this isn't good enough, this doesn't count. But there is more that full-on sense of a freely given gift. When we're offering sympathetic joy to someone, and we have the sense not, you know, well, may you keep your happiness a little bit longer, (laughs) you know, but not too much. But there's no holding back. We just give. When we practice um, the very classic, uh, traditional element of the Buddhist teaching of sharing merit, you know, the belief being that when we do something toward the good, when we're generous, when we're kind, when we're restrained, like we could have told a lie, but we don't, when we sit down to meditate or we walk, when we have that kind of dedication in our mind, that commitment in our mind toward goodness, that creates an energy. It's a power. And we don't just keep that energy and take personal delight in it, but we offer it, we give it, we share it. And so that's a very classic thing to do. We'll do it at the end of the retreat, which is not yet here, to share the merit of, of teaching. We will share the merit of teaching. You know, we can share the merit of practicing because it's powerful, that energy. And we dedicate it to the welfare, to the happiness of all beings, those who've helped us, those who are in trouble, all beings everywhere. So we're constantly working with the force of generosity in all of these different forms. And morality as well, which is the second parami, which I know Annie talked about quite a bit last night. To have that sense of just being straightforward in our lives, to have that kind of, of simplicity is really very powerful. There's a, a concept that isn't talked about so very much um, in the teaching, but it's very important. It's called gladdening the mind. See, it's not really all about suffering after all. We gladden the mind. We do the things that will uplift us and open us and open our hearts. We aim ourselves toward that possibility. We practice it. And that's what morality is is really for. It's for our own fearlessness. It's for our sense of strength. It's for that particular kind of happiness. It's to gladden our minds so that we can look at anything that comes up in our experience And it's okay. We're practicing that kind of straightforwardness 
whether we're sitting with our eyes closed or we are speaking to somebody, we're relating to somebody, we're looking at things in context, we're understanding as best we can how our experience arises and what the consequences of it might be. And when the Buddha said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another, it's a very powerful statement. If you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another because harming someone else is like harming ourselves. And we can experience that very clearly. So when we look at our experience when we are in retreat, of course we do create a, a container, we create a community that, that is um, very much guided by the precepts. And we internalize that, we bring that within. And so too, when we are out in the world, it's the same kinds of commitment. And it's also the same sense of adventure. You know, I was, I was saying to somebody how, you know, mostly when we think about taking a risk or having an adventure, it's usually in the, in the arena of indulgence. Well, I'll just do this thing that I've never done before. You know, that's taking a risk. And it's so rare that we think about taking a risk in terms of renunciation, which is another parmi, or morality, which would actually be a rather interesting thing to do as an experiment, you know, to have that kind of understanding of looking at, at morality and looking at those dimensions and making that exploration as an act of courage. It's an act of daring and creativity, it's not being self-righteous and it's not being repressed, but it's interesting to say, okay, what happens when I choose to live this way, when I'm simpler or when I'm more careful uh, about things or, or more considerate in some way? And I told someone the story about how, um, Annie probably went into the precepts in some detail, but you know that one precept uh, about intoxicants which uh, generally reads in translation as undertaking a precept not to take intoxicants that will cloud the mind or cause heedlessness. And, and this is often the subject of great debate. What is heedlessness? And how heedless do you have to be before you've broken the precept? And you know, how cloudy does your mind need to get? And what about one glass of wine at dinner? And um, surely it must mean moderation. It couldn't possibly mean not having any intoxicants at all. And this is often discussed. Um, and once I was in, uh, I was actually in Burma, studying with Saira Upandita, and somebody asked him the question, about that precept, saying, well, what does that precept actually mean? And, and is, you know, drinking, say, for example, in moderation, really in any way a violation of the precept? And you could kind of tell from the tone of voice in which this person was asking that they expected uh, Upandita to say, 
oh, it's okay, you know, just have a beer now and then, it's not going to be a problem, or, you know, just be careful about staying aware or something like that. And it's like one of those classic situations where, what's the saying? You should never ask a question unless you know the answer beforehand. So I was sitting there listening to this person ask the question, and and sure enough, instead of saying, instead of responding in the way he clearly wanted to be responded to, Pandita Sayadaw said, well, there's only one way that you can have an intoxicant like a drink without it breaking the precept, and that is if somebody tied you up and they poured the liquor down your throat and you didn't enjoy it. (laughs) He said, that wouldn't be breaking the precept. So my first response, frankly, was, that is really extreme. You know, that is so extreme. And then I thought, wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, I never drank uh, great amounts anyway, but... Um, I did sometimes have a glass of wine at dinner or something like that, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to actually undertake the precept in a way beyond what I had undertaken it before, as that kind of experiment? You know, not to be all self-righteous and and imagine that I'm better than other people or anything like that, but instead of just saying, oh, well, that's too extreme— which we tend to say, I think, more when it's in the direction of simplicity and giving up things than when we you know, are imagining about enjoying ourselves. Um, I thought, why not? You know, Just take a period of six months or something like that and don't drink anything. See what that's like. And in just that way, I think we can continue to look at our lives almost as our own artistic medium to see that here's where we can be creative, here's where we can explore. And we keep paying attention, we keep looking in just those ways. There's a separate parmi, even aside from morality, which is truthfulness. And I always thought, isn't that interesting? That in this list being truthful is somehow considered so important that it has its own its own kind of separate category to be truthful they say you know in the, the legends around the buddha's uh, previous lives called the jataka tales um, where they talk about the development of all these parmis how lifetime after the lifetime the Bodhisattva took birth, you know, it was a, a rabbit and a deer and a person, and then, you know, all, all these different forms of life as he was developing generosity and morality and, and truthfulness and renunciation and, and uh, all of them, and, and how in many lives he would have some kind of um, failing, you might say, you know, he would end up breaking a precept or, or something would go wrong for him. But the one precept he never broke was about truthfulness. Because from the moment he formed the aspiration to become fully enlightened, when he made that kind of commitment to a complete understanding of ultimate truth, 
he was on a path of truthfulness. So even though he made many, many mistakes and had many problems and all kinds of, of confrontations with difficulty, he told the truth. And I think, what an outstanding quality, because of course that's what we're trying to do as we look within. We might be so tempted to shade our experience as something that it's not through interpretation or exaggeration. And that doesn't always mean to glorify it. It can also mean to denounce it in some way or disparage it. But to learn to strip away all of those interpretations and the overlay of concept and judgment and just to say, this is what's happening. It's a tremendous inner discipline. It is our inner discipline. It is our path. And to then express that externally, to practice it externally, to tell the truth. It's very powerful, and it's really the same thing. It's seamless. The more we can do it in one domain, the more we can do it in the other domain. They're not separate. And of course, when the Buddha was talking about speech, he talked about saying that which is true and that which is useful, which means being kind. To say that which is true doesn't necessarily mean that it's useful to go around telling everybody what you think of them. Or even in the case of of what you're about to experience, you know, when somebody asks you about your retreat experience, it may not be that useful to go into excruciating detail, you know, that, well, on the third afternoon of the second half, you know, I had this knee pain, and then, you know, I watched it, and, and then myself just disappeared, and it was, you know, but then I couldn't get that back, and I tried on the fourth day, and I tried on the fifth day, and I tried on the sixth day, you know, it's like, that's probably not that useful, You know, this is the time where we, if we haven't done it already, we try to pay attention in a bigger context. We actually look for those nonverbal clues from the other person. We take a moment and we think, well, what might be the most useful or skillful thing to say in this moment in time? We pay attention. We pay attention to our motivation. We pay attention to the world around us. We pay attention to the context. And we do the best that we can. One of the parmies is is effort or energy. We certainly know how we need to apply that in terms of our inner work. You know, we get up and sit even when we don't feel like it. Or our attention wanders, and it's really, really, really interesting, the place it wandered to. And still we let go, and we begin again. Or we find ourselves starting to spiral in this tremendous wave of self-judgment, And we stop, and we say, I don't need to go there again in the gentlest possible way. 
and we start over. It all takes effort. It takes a lot of energy. It doesn't need to be strained or, or horrible energy where we're, you know, we're just holding on and, and um, we're so tense and, and we're so uptight because nothing's going to happen from that anyway. But when it's, it's really right effort, that combination of great aspiration and also relaxation, when we have wholeheartedness, we're not holding back anymore. We're not halfway here. We're really here, even if just for a moment. That's right effort. And it's because of, of right effort that everything happens. Many people just, they dislike that teaching so much. But I, you know, I think I said this earlier in the retreat, I've always found it the most empowering part of the teaching, that we do not need to depend on anyone. We do not need to depend on anything, any situation. What we need is that kind of effort, that kind of energy to see things as clearly as we can, to connect as fully as we can. That's amazing, you know, the independence of that and the, the implication of that in terms of our potential, our capacity to grow and to change, that we can move our lives when we make the effort. It needs to be a steadfast effort but it's, it's energy. And so, too, when we look at leaving a retreat form and going back out into the world, many teachers will say that the most important thing in daily life is, is to have some dedicated period where you're actually practicing, like a sitting, or it could be a walking, certainly, Um, instead, but usually we say sitting. And when I was first in India, and I was was practicing with Goenka and not being mindful, he said to me, he said to everybody, um, what you need to do is to sit for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And in many ways that was possible because there we were living in India, we were doing nothing, you know, other than that. And, you know, we'd like get up and we'd have chai or something. Uh, And there wasn't, you know, maybe you had to mail a letter that day, but there wasn't (laughs) really a whole lot to do. Um, You know, here it tends to be different. We're very busy, lives are very consuming, it's very intense. Is very demanding, but it is true that what we need to do, mostly, we need to do, is to have that kind of dedicated period of practice because everything we hold dear in an abstract way, everything we imagine is possible hypothetically, can become real if we practice. You know, so sometimes people will say something like, well, you can be mindful doing anything, you know, so why sit? It doesn't matter. 
Just be mindful. And that may be true, but are we really going to be mindful? You know, I had, um, she wasn't one of my teachers, but she was like an acquaintance of mine in India who was a teacher, a woman who's a Bengali woman, who is in a very um, kind of difficult life situation. She, uh, at a very, very young age, um, been placed into an arranged marriage, as was the custom, and um, it was a difficult situation, and her, her in-laws were kind of tyrannical, and uh, they wouldn't let her. She wanted very much to go off and do retreats and, and things like that, and they wouldn't let her go uh, quite a bit of the time. She didn't have that opportunity because of her situation, and, and yet she progressed very far in practice to the point where she became a teacher. And so one day somebody asked her, well, how'd that happen? You know, you didn't have the opportunity to go off and, you know, you haven't done that many retreats. And um, how did you make so much progress in the development of, you know, wisdom and compassion and all these qualities so that you could be a teacher? And she said, I was very mindful when I stirred the rice. Now, the difference between her saying that and the way I often say that is that she was very mindful when she stirred the rice. In the midst of a difficult, demanding, unpleasant situation, she really tried. She put her heart there. Whereas I could say that, oh, you know, you can be mindful doing anything, it doesn't really matter, but will I really live it? And I'll tell you from my own experience, the answer is no, unless I really have some period of the day when I'm doing something like sitting. Because when I do that, then I find I am more mindful stirring the rice, and I'm more mindful walking up the stairs, and I'm more mindful drinking a cup of tea. That these values, which I do really cherish and hold dear, tend to become a little distant (laughs) and kind of theoretical unless I have some period of each day where I am just making them real. And that's the purpose of of that kind of daily commitment. So I really say, and this is, you know, for me, um, that more important than, you know, sitting for an hour is the fact that you sit down to do it. So that if in one day you only have five minutes, you know, you don't have an hour, rather than thinking this isn't going to count, it's not worth doing, it's still really important to do, to make that effort. Because it's effort that is taking what is abstract and making it real. To make the effort to sit down to do it. If you've only got five minutes one day, sit for five minutes. Of course, if you have longer than five minutes, that's really great, because what almost everybody experiences in a daily life sitting is that the first five or ten minutes are complete chaos. You know, we sit down and we think, I forgot to call so-and-so, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And, um, those of you who sat with me in New York City know that I, um, for a few different seasons, rented an apartment. Um, I sublet an apartment that had this incredibly loud refrigerator. And so I told many stories about my sittings where I'd sit down, I'd think, 
that refrigerator, that's abnormal. That's not a normal sound. I don't know. I better call the landlord. The landlord lives above them. He's going to think I'm a kook. What if it is a normal sound? What if it's just me? No, I better call a refrigerator repair person. How do I find a refrigerator repair person in the city? You know, just like constant barrage, just this cascade of thinking about my refrigerator. <laughs> and then it would pass. You know, so if we only sit for, like, refrigerator mind, you know, <laughs> for that first five minutes, that's what's going to happen. And even that is good. It's like a, a tremendous discharge of tension and stress. But if we can sit beyond that, we will go beyond that. And we will get to experience a, a greater quiet. So to make the effort is very, very important. One of the things that holds us back from doing that is, is the very familiar habit of judgment. Even in India with nothing else to do, I didn't always find it so easy to have a daily practice. I wasn't always on retreat. Sometimes I was just living a life. And it was hard sometimes. The reason it was hard was not because of my other obligations, but because I was in the habit of assessing and judging my experience. And experience in daily life, just like experience here, is quite variable. There are times we sit down and it's very peaceful after the first few minutes. It's very quiet. We have very few thoughts. We're quite concentrated. We feel very collected. There are other times when we sit down and we're quite sleepy or, or we feel just these waves of restlessness It changes all of the time. And usually, you know, we get into the habit of, certainly when you first leave, the concentration is is pretty strong. You may not feel like you've developed much concentration, but you, you really have, all of you. And that is something that maintains for some period of time. And then it comes and goes. It can be quite sporadic. So we're not always peaceful. We're not always quiet. Sometimes we're restless. Sometimes it's very difficult. So mostly the habit is, while it feels good, it seems glorious. And we think, oh, great, you know? I'm going to sit every day for the rest of my life. This is fantastic. And then it gets a little rocky. And then we have a really sleepy sitting one day, and then we have a really restless sitting the next day, and we think, oh, well, I know what I'll do. I won't go out this weekend at all. I'll just meditate all weekend. I'll do a two-day retreat, and that way I'll build back up the momentum. And when I start sitting again next week, it'll be from a very different place. And maybe we do that. Maybe that's how we spend our weekend, or maybe it's not. But regardless... Maybe the concentration doesn't come back in full force. And we're still kind of restless or, or sleepy. And then we think, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work at home. You know, I better go back and do another retreat. Um, if I could just sit for 10 days, you know, in that very special atmosphere, then that would really give me a foundation so that I won't have, you know, these difficulties anymore and it'll just be smooth sailing and... And maybe you come back or maybe you don't. But nonetheless, 
it's still, you know, it remains kind of up and down. And then you think, I can't do it. Everyone else can do it, but I can't do it. It doesn't work for me. You know, and it's just this tremendous spiral downward. And I was in the, the midst of one of those kind of spirals, living in India, trying to keep a daily practice going, um, having a, a very hard time when, uh, for just those reasons, you know, I would be completely exhilarated when it felt good, thinking I'm going to live here for the entire rest of my life, and tremendously discouraged when it was difficult. And I went to this teacher, Menindra, um, and I explained my dynamic to him, and he said, I have one piece of advice for you, and that is, put your body there. He said, that's what you need to do every day, is just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel one way, other days it's going to feel another way. You just have to do it. It's the effort which is the most important quality of all. And so we need to carry that out in order to have that kind of foundation for all of these values to to permeate our lives. William James said, We measure ourselves by many standards. Our strength and our intelligence, our wealth and even our good luck are things which warm our heart and make us feel ourselves a match for life. But deeper than all such things and able to suffice unto itself without them is the sense of the amount of effort we can put forth. One who can make none is but a shadow. One who can make much is a hero. Because the whole, the whole point of the teachings is not about tradition. It's about a living spirituality, which tradition can support, but it can never replace. It's about our lives. It's about creating our lives. It's about making that kind of effort. It's about daring to be different, to make choices, to choose to be kind, when it isn't so easy, to choose to be moral when it isn't so easy, to be truthful, and to experience the the kind of opening um, and the the very distinct joy that comes from that. There's a parmi of patience. Sometimes I used to say to myself, even if I'm doing nothing else, I'm learning how to be patient. To be patient in our practice, certainly. You probably don't need to hear any more about that because you've been practicing that for a long time now. To be patient with the expression of our practice in our lives. To be patient with ourselves. To remember that very first thing I talked about, which is learning how to begin again where, you know, you leave here and you have all this great determination and you make some colossal mistake or you don't sit for some period of time, you've got to be able to begin again, no matter what. You know how those feelings, I have it so many times where I feel like I'm learning the same thing over and over and over again, the same lesson? It's like when I 
uh, gave that talk and I talked about how Saira Upandita said to me, in the beginning it can be like that. That sense of appreciating being a beginner and not stressing out about what I was supposed to be experiencing and having that kind of sense of openness and, and wonder about what is happening instead of um, all those, those demands and expectations. Well, that wasn't the first time I learned that lesson, <laughs> nor I'm sure will it be the last. It seems to be something I have to learn again and again and again, over and over again. And that very simple but pivotal teaching about beginning again is the same thing. I feel like I began to learn it in my early meditation practice when I was sitting with Goenka and and he told us not to move for the course of the sitting, the hour sitting. And I always moved. I moved every single sitting. But I moved so early on in the sitting, maybe 10 minutes into the sitting, something like that, that I could easily chastise myself for the whole rest of the sitting for having moved. You know, why'd you do that? You didn't have to do that so quickly. You're always the first one to move. You're always the only one to move. Yesterday you sat longer. You didn't have to move so quickly today. You know, and realizing that having moved, it was a new sitting. I needed to just begin again. Was the first time, maybe, that I learned it. And I've learned it seven billion times since. The earliest things, the simplest things, everything that seems like an introduction tends to prove to be some of the most advanced teaching of all. To be able to begin again, to have some patience, to have that kind of diligence, no matter where your mind has gone, no matter what you've done, you can start over is really an amazing, essential teaching. There is the parmi of equanimity, to remember balance, which is what it's all about, that we cannot stop changing conditions, that our goal is not to flatten them out so that we feel nothing, there is no pleasure, there is no pain. It's just not going to be like that. That part and parcel of the package of our experience is this sense, this perception of pleasure, pain, and neutrality. And that each issues or forms its own challenge to be fully awake and connected when things are pleasant, internally or externally, without that extra thing of holding on, to be fully connected and awake when things are unpleasant, internally or externally, without that other extra thing of pushing it away or or being afraid, to have an open heart with the difficult things we encounter, and to be fully connected and awake with all those neutral experiences. To open a door, to drink a cup of tea, to pay attention to a breath, 
that's a very full day. That's a very full life. To bring forth equanimity, to understand that we cannot flatten out experience, we cannot control the unfolding of events, but we can be present. And finally, there's a parmi, I didn't list them all, of, um, of loving kindness. To know deeply and truly that the loving kindness we practice externally when we care, when we pay attention, when we listen to somebody, is something that has tremendous impact on our formal practice. It's not separate. And in just that same way, when we listen to ourselves, to our own experience, with some kindness, when we care, when we're more patient, when we let go of some of that judgment, it translates, it's meant to translate into how we live. When we're in a situation where it would be so easy just to dismiss somebody or or not really listen to them, but you know, kind of half listen to them and half think about the next person we need to call or something like that. And we stop. And we actually do gather our attention and we listen. It's, it's a great act of loving kindness. When we pay attention to somebody... You know, it's so easy just to react and, and to kind of um, put somebody in a, a category, like in a rut. Um, you know, and, uh, even though we use categories in the formal loving-kindness practice or, or Brahma-Vihara practice, it's a kind of, um, you know, it's like a skillful means. It's a tool for being able to build upon the practice and to unfold it, to elaborate it. But it, it's not meant that you know somebody is cast into a certain category forevermore. And once a, a friend of mine was sitting the um, loving kindness retreat that I teach every year here in, in February, and she had a dream um, about her email address book, and she had everyone in categories like benefactors, friends, neutral people, <laughs> enemies, um, which I thought was very funny. Um, you know, we kind of do that a little bit, of like, here comes my neutral person, you know, or I don't know anything about this person, I don't care. Um, but as, you know, the Dalai Lama, um, I'm on one of those email things that sends out a Dalai Lama quote of the week, and recently the Dalai Lama quote of the week was about enemies and friends, and he said, you know, basically that's a very permeable category, Somebody can be our friend and then something happens and we consider them an enemy or a difficult person and someone can be our difficult person and we see them anew or we understand them in a different way and they can be our friend. To really make that effort to pay attention to ourselves as we practice formally with that, that light of loving kindness to make the effort to pay attention to others, which is loving kindness. You know, not just to dismiss them or, or stick them in a um, 
kind of category or um, overlook them, but to really be present. Every single moment we do that will make a difference in this kind of unified vision of, of our life as practice. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.